ESPN LA, Kamenetsky Brothers, Andy Kamenetsky, Brian Kamenetsky. Our guest is our former colleague back from our old days at the ESPNLA.com website back when that was a thing. That still technically exists. Eh, it's not the same thing. No. We covered the Lakers together as the strongest NBA trio in the business. I'll say it. Um, <laughs> he's since then moved to, since moved on to Cleveland to cover the Cavaliers for ESPN.com. Uh, has a new book out co-written by... Uh, with Brian Winhorst. It's called Return of the King. LeBron James, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and the greatest comeback in NBA history. He also has our guest, the best outside shot of any basketball writer at ESPN. Some would say he should have been the MVP of the first ESPN LA celebrity basketball tournament had politics not come into play. Dave McMenamin, how are you? I'm doing great, and uh, yeah, I would only have come on this podcast if I got an intro like that. So I'm glad you took care of your part, and now I'm ready. To well, they don't, they're not going to take care of you the, uh, at the University of Limerick like we'll do here for you on this show. <laughs> that's, that's for them. Sure, I like that. I, 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 in, did you? Oh, yeah, we read the whole thing, man. We, you're going to come on the show. We read the whole thing. Do you, do you, were you like the best guy they had there? I wish I could say that. No, I was uh, I was a rotation player. Which, you weren't the you know, best player in the team in the University of Limerick. Oh no, 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 no! I was one of so the, the the I guess the part that I can brag about is that they're only allowed to have two Americans on each team. Like you know, they don't want to load up um, with Americans. That wouldn't be fair to the Irish players, nor would it be you know their perception that American players are better. So you don't want to stack your team that way and not really have a a fair representation of the university when you play in the intervarsity tournament. So I was one of the two Americans to make the team. So I was one of the, uh, along with Chris Dugan, one of my close friends, we were the guys to make the team in the tryouts for the Americans to make the team. But um, no, we had, you know, we had a six foot six center who played professionally in Ireland for about 10 years. Actually, I ran into him this past summer. I went to Ireland with my, my family on vacation and we had, we had a handful of, Three or four other guys who who were really good athletes, who uh, not just in basketball, but you know they played uh, football, uh, soccer, or whatever. And um, so I, I was just happy to be in the mix. Uh, you know, hit, hit, some, hit some shots, scored. Uh, you know, scored eight points in my debut over there. I'm still proud of that. Yeah. What but, what kind uh, of coin do you make playing professionally in Ireland? Uh, yeah, I didn't know that was a thing. Not great. Yeah, <laughs> it's called the Burger King Super League. Uh, (laughs) if there are levels of pro basketball it it is towards the bottom um in terms of overall competition uh lifestyle wise though you know you live in ireland and enjoy the crack the c-r-a-i-c crack uh that's you know having fun that's how we say it out there okay Okay. (laughs) i was like (laughs) i mean if there's no testing over there do what you want just spelling it didn't necessarily answer my question but then (laughs) then you did uh and um you know the lifestyle uh you're not selling out arenas or anything like that but you know you're gonna have a ton of fun with your teammates so i i would say if there's 10 levels it it, it would have to be around three or two the 10 being highest but now, the cool part is that the pro team, there was a pro team in Limerick, and so they would practice uh, sometimes with us. And we got to know, like, our, our head coach at University of Limerick was actually a player on the pro team, uh, huh. uh, a guy named Matt from, from Wales. And Cleotis Brown, who played at 
uh, University of Illinois in the, I guess it would have been late 90s. Uh, <laughs> no idea who that Americans. is. <laughs> yeah, he was one of the Americans on the uh, on, on, Great on, name, though. on the pro team. Yeah, Klee. He went by Klee. Klee Otis. Cool. Okay, now, what were your stats, Dave? And don't say you don't remember them. I know you remember them. <laughs> That's funny. Actually, Ramona did a – Ramona Shelburne, another colleague of all of ours, uh, at one point did a podcast with Richard Deitch with SI recently, and he asked – her for her batting average to Stanford. She's like, oh, I don't remember. Oh, and then, like, one of the BS. Like, immediately looked it up. Come on, Ramona remembered her. Ramona knows average. not only does she remember her, her batting average from like at Stanford, she remembers it every year and then every junior. Oh, she you know, she knows school. like her OBP, her oh. slugging percentage. She knows her war. I don't know if they calculate <laughs> yeah. war for Stanford softball, but they but she knows it. So I'm not going to go the I don't remember route. Like I honestly, it was roughly around five points per game. Uh, but I, I shot, I think, confidently around forty percent from three. Of course yeah, you did. Playing, of course you did. I was playing. I was playing. You know, ten to fifteen minutes a game. It's a forty-minute game. So that's not uh, bad. Your yeah. per thirty-six isn't bad. <laughs> yeah, made, made some shots. Made some shots. Okay, so now how did this? All right, Dave. It was great having you on. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so now, how how did this book come about? Like, how early into the process of LeBron's? Uh, Return. Somebody didn't read the epilogue. Some of the people listening oh, may not okay. have been dummy. <laughs> like no, everybody <laughs> listening to this podcast hasn't read the book. Just saying, dummy. Um, how I guess how uh, how did that process come about? Now that Brian butchered this. Uh, well, Brian and I, Brian Winhorst and I, became uh, really entrenched together that first season. LeBron came back in Cleveland, even though Brian wasn't there on the ground every day. I'd say he maybe covered 30 or so regular season games alongside me, and then obviously the whole playoff run. So that's when we first started talking about it, that playoff run, and we said, wow, what a what a year this has been. Um, you know, not only just the way LeBron left Miami, but, I mean, the 2015, 20, excuse me, 2014-2015 season, in some ways I think it was more compelling than the following year when they won it all, just because you had the, David Blatt, the coach from Europe, never been in the NBA before, uh, you had some amazing roster-changing trades in the middle of the regular season when it looked like the Cavs were dead in the water in 19 and 20. You had LeBron taking a two-week hiatus in the middle of the year, something he's never done before. When certainly he had some wear and tear, you know, his back was barking and uh, he had a knee issue. But um, to, to, to take time off the middle of the season, go down to Miami for, for rehab, the city where he had just burned, uh, just the things were piling up. And then all of a sudden, they became a great team, and um, they got to the finals and, and pushed the Warriors to their limit. Had they won that year, we would have had a book last summer. <laughs> uh, we started to put together a treatment at a Starbucks in Independent Ohio, Independence, Ohio, where the Cavs practiced um, back in uh, May of 2015. But uh, we, you know, after we had spent that season working together a lot with one another, we, we became even more comfortable. Uh, with, each other, with each other for the 2015-2016 season. And we worked on two really big pieces um, that were really well-received, and we figured out our rhythm working together. We did a piece when Blatt was fired, and we did a piece after Game 7. And so we kind of had an outline, and then we took those two pieces, and uh, we started shopping it around. Um, and uh, relatively quickly from you – know, I, I think we got our deal – settled upon like in the first or second week of july um and uh you know <laughs> then that, that was time to 
to actually make this thing happen. Right. Uh, Not coincidentally, uh, it's also the same week you started driving a Bentley. <laughs> yeah. No, not quite. <laughs> not quite. Um, what when you what is the what's the balance between being able to use reporting that you've done? I mean, you guys were there. I mean, every day, every game, and all that, and then having to go back and 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 re-report things and go back and 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 construct details for a book like this. Yeah, there was uh, the vast majority is, is stuff that we either reported originally for the first time um, in previous ESPN pieces um, or, or stuff that had already been out there at some point, but just putting out all, all that stuff together mm-hmm. uh, and, and being the ones to kind of aggregate, you know, one outlet had this detail, another outlet had this detail. We had these details. When you put all those details together, um, it's a much you know, fuller and, and vibrant story. And then we made sure we wanted to sit down with as many principal parties as we could for new interviews. And, um, and that was kind of like a domino thing. Like once we started to get a couple of people to agree, then we, we, when we went to try to get another source, we be like, well, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so has already sat down with us. You know, if you want to tell your side of the story, you know, they said this about that. And, and perhaps you'd want to share your part on that. So, uh, you know, we must have done – I would say, you know, probably around two dozen new interviews with principal parties um, throughout the course of the summer. And and that we could just use to kind of give new blood to the previous material that, that had already been out there. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask, particularly with the early new rounds of interviews, how trepidatious do people get when you tell them it's for a book? Because, I mean, as much as athletes – sometimes can be cautious around any writers. It's different when it's a magazine article or something online where the shelf life is relatively short. You know, a book is forever. Well, Brian's line, which I think helps kind of loosen some lips up throughout the process, was, listen, guys, on the last page you win. <laughs> this is a great story. Right. We just want to make sure we tell it the right way, and you will have this fair representation of, what you guys accomplished. It's an incredible story. We want, you know, people to understand how incredible that story was. So that kind of, that's something that we tried to appeal to reason with people. And then, you know, beyond that, uh, I don't want to be like, you know, pat ourselves on the back, but I think by the way we had approached the job um, every day, I think um, people kind of were familiar with our work, uh, trusted our work and uh, didn't think that we were looking for a fast buck or going to burn someone to, to, you know, try to sell more books because we're both kind of NBA lifers now, or we hope to be. And uh, it wouldn't be really prudent for either of us to try to juice up a book and compromise anything we want to be able to do for the rest of our career covering the NBA. Well, the only guy that, that that doesn't apply to, and I agree with with your assessment, both of your you know your work and Brian's work, um, is David Blatt. Like, so how was it hard to get cooperation from people around him? Because he doesn't he doesn't win on the last page. He's the only guy that that doesn't really apply <laughs> right. to. Well, you know, we we didn't fly to you know Europe to having further interview with David Blatt, so um, that wasn't not represented um mm-hmm. uh, so there was 
text messages sent by myself that were never returned. And quite frankly, I'm not sure if he's still the cell number he had when he was in Cleveland. Um, so that's a, it's a fair question there. Um, at the same time, um, I think the general tone or general story we tried to tell for Davis is that it, it just wasn't a fair setup for him from the start. Um, and never did we want to portray him as someone who was um, in out of his depth in terms of like X's and O's of basketball. As Brian and I and a lot of people we spoke to believe that, that David Blatt knows basketball. It's just the situation of the NBA and the situation of believing he was coming to coach a team that was Anthony Bennett and Andrew Wiggins and Deion Waiters and Kyrie Irving and try to get that plucky young group turn in a direction where they can, you know, be greater than the sum of all their parts is just a completely different task than uh, being handed over what was left of LeBron James's prime uh, with a championship robust mandate. And so, um, you know, again, the, the, he, I guess, is the, the figure that maybe got the, the most raw deal out of this whole process. Uh, at the same same time, um, his, I mean, quite frankly, his role in everything made everything so much more charged and made the story uh, just almost unbelievable because it was a you know square peg in a round hole, and despite that, <laughs> they still almost won the championship and David Blatt right. alone full season. It's it's funny too because you know and I I've, I've said this a lot and Andy's heard me say it like the, so much of of what it seemed like externally was wrong with David Blatt was the aesthetics of it all like he never never quite said the right thing and he I mean he had kind of a doofus face like he just always he didn't have the right look I think too to 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 make all this work I mean what what ultimately do you think was his undoing if you could point to one quality about him or, or was it really more the setup well uh i think the one quality was he didn't really have a great sense for the pacing of an nba season and that was a, a completely veteran locker room he was trying to lord over i mean i think there was 11 out of the 14 players i want to get that number right maybe it's nine out of the 14 players had 10 years plus experience in the league uh, he's trying to coach. And, and he's literally um, going to NBA arenas for the first time he's ever stepped foot in these buildings. And he's trying to lead a group of men where he's just, you know, the environment, he's never been there before. So there's just that comfort factor. There was times, several cases where David Black came into the media room uh, thinking he was going into to like the coach's office or the restroom. And that's not a big deal, right? But if you're supposed to be in such a place of, of comfort and command that you're trying to tell future Hall of Famers what to do, just those little details, I think, matter. Uh, but getting back to the pacing of the season, uh, the players believe that he treated each game almost as its own entity rather than use the season to build and grow on themes, on, on schematics, on uh, rotations, uh, things that, you know, guys who had been on championship runs before were familiar with their coaches and, and their teams doing. And there wasn't a sense of that. And then the other really damning part of 
his tenure in Cleveland was he, for whatever reason, uh, and, and this is, I think, quite understandable on a human level, but never was able to challenge or, or correct LeBron James in front of his teammates. And they have film sessions where he'd point out the mistakes of other, te- other players on the team, but LeBron's st- mistakes wouldn't be brought up. And that put everybody in a tough position because it kind of put Teron Liu in the disciplinarian role uh, where he was someone who could do those things with LeBron. But if he's always tasked with doing that, then it could look like he's overstepping his bounds as a assistant coach. And, you know, then a whole new perception uh, becomes, uh, you know, and which did exist for part of David Blatt's time on the sidelines of Cleveland was, well, he's actually just kind of, uh, you know, an empty vessel, and and you know the real guy coaching the team is Tron Liu, um, and that wasn't fair to David or to Ty. So it was just it was just a tough situation for him. And um, you know, I, I think had he come over and been an assistant coach for the Golden State Warriors, as there there was a deal for him to, to be, uh, we're talking about a completely different coaching life for David Blatt. But um, the way way things went, that's you know that that just ended up being him having a footnote in the, you know, the the story of, of the Cavs finally breaking through that championship drought. Yeah, speaking of David Blatt and Ty Lue and just the coaching situation in general, one of the things that the book lays out very well is just how surprised Cleveland was to find themselves back in the LeBron James sweepstakes. It was something that they really didn't expect, and, you know, they they went into a lot of the machinations of setting – the team up to possibly get LeBron back, you know, flying blind in a lot of ways. They did, you know, they did a lot without any real reassurances that LeBron was coming back. And obviously David Blatt would never have been hired if they thought LeBron was coming back because he's just not the right coach. But would some, would Ty Lue have been experienced enough, do you think, to get that job in the beginning had they have known LeBron was coming back, or do you think they would have gone in a completely different direction altogether if they'd really known all along, okay, all kidding aside, we really may get LeBron? Oh, yeah, I don't think Ty Lue is, is that head coach. Um, you know, he was given a very handsome contract, the highest-paid assistant coach in league history at that point, but that was partially because of David Blatt's um, experience or lack of experience in the NBA, so they needed – a very qualified assistant coach who is steeped in the NBA to pair with him. Uh, Ty would have stayed in, in L.A. with the Clippers. Um, you know, I, I think a guy that they had really had their sights on was, was John Calipari, and, and he was offered a, a crazy deal. I mean, we're talking $90 million um, to be both the head coach and, and have a front office role as well. And, of course, Cal has ties with, with LeBron, um, through Nike and that runs deep, um, you know. Um, but I, I don't think that Ty would have been that guy. Um, you know, and the Cavs didn't, you're right, they didn't know they were going to get LeBron back. They saw it going into the 2013-14 season, you know, with Mike Brown as the coach, thinking that maybe that could help things in the future and with a young core that they really hoped would be make, make the playoffs that year, that, okay, we can prove enough this year to have LeBron consider us this upcoming summer. But, of course, they didn't make the playoffs. Mike Brown was fired. Chris Grant was fired. And it looked like just a house on fire uh, to the point where, you know, going to free agency that summer, 
they had a whiteboard where they're listing the names that they want to target at small forward, and it's Gordon Hayward, and you know, it's Trevor Ariza. LeBron's not even on that whiteboard, and it's not like you know they don't want to do it to jinx it. They didn't do it because they didn't think it was anywhere remotely realistic of possibility. Um, but of course, and this is where the book begins. Really gets into the TikTok of the details that led to LeBron leaving Miami and the calls that were made and the meetings that were had and the instructions that were given to the Cavs to say, hey, you know, you're going to get a meeting with us, um, but in order for that to happen, you have to clear enough cap space to offer LeBron James a max deal. That's the only way he's going to do it. And the Cavs had to you know, take the risk of, all right, so we start dismantling our roster just for the chance to potentially get LeBron back. Um, and of course, to their credit, they did, and LeBron came back, and you know, of course, they both accomplished their goal of winning that championship. It's funny, you know, Dan Gilbert, you know, is you know obviously needs to be sold on that process. He's he's one of the more surprisingly, I think, sympathetic figures in the book for basketball fans because you know he he's a he's been mocked. I mean pretty openly in basketball circles for a long time. And he's the guy who wrote the comic sans letter and they've got 900 coaches in like four years. And all of this stuff that went on in the the general perception, honestly, that the Cavs kind of failed their way back into LeBron. But the flip side is he, you, you present a guy too, who spends a ton of money on the team, like willing to do it and does a lot of really good stuff for his, for his employees, for his players, you know the, the the level of service that they get, you know that that whole section about Channing Fry being amazed about all the stuff you get at their practice facility mm-hmm. is just incredible. So, what is the what is the full picture of Dan Gilbert as an owner, and did it change at all? You know, sort of your perception from the beginning of like LeBron saga leaving Cleveland to where you are now. I think both guys recognized they made mistakes on LeBron way out the door. Um, and, but I don't think either of them necessarily regret them. Like they, I don't think they would change what they went about. Uh, Dan felt like his actions were justified because he wanted to show uh, a loyalty to his fan base, to his employees, to what they had there and legitimize that it's, you know, we're not going to be ashamed for what we did. Um, LeBron made his choices, but but we are still we still have a lot to be proud of here. And LeBron, on on his end, um, he would obviously tell you that Miami decision was the correct one for him. Um, it was something he needed to do at that stage of his life. He lived in Northeast Ohio. Not like he ever went away for college or anything like that. And uh, he raised close to three million dollars for charity in the process. So neither both sides. I don't think they're going to go down with major regrets of how they reacted to, you know, the, that summer, that decision. Uh, they both grown though. One, they had a common goal. Uh, no, LeBron, the unfinished sentence was always going to be in Cleveland. And Dan Gilbert was not about to sell the franchise at any time while LeBron was still playing right especially with having a casino downtown and everything like that so they needed each other to achieve what they wanted to do Dan Gilbert wanted to replicate the success that the Pistons had that was his team that he rooted for growing up and you know LeBron wanted to have 
his hometown experience, you know, uh, all the the amazing things that his talent can actually create. So uh, to me, Dan, you know, put his money where his mouth is, which is I think most fans would love to have an owner like Dan Gilbert, despite the things that, you know, may irk you. Any owner who's, who actually cares about winning will put spending above anything else. That That's how you win in the NBA. Uh, you pay players. You get the best players by spending the most money. And that was the kind of the agreement that, hey, uh, you know, LeBron's been here in Miami and they're having some success, but it looks like they're starting to make some deals here, you know, getting rid of Mike Miller and trading draft picks and, they don't seem to be fully committed to doing everything they possibly can to maximize LeBron's prime. And Dan, will you do that? Will you spend whatever it takes and do all the moves necessary to give us a hundred percent of the, the chance to try to win? And he's done that. Um, and, you know, that's included things like buying draft picks, you know, when you don't even know if they're going to necessarily pan out. That's uh, included things like the Kazavet 20 three players, 22 players on the roster this season where, you know, they'll, they'll pay a guy for a little bit of time. He's not working. All right, well, we'll trade him or cut him and we'll pay another guy. And um, I think the fact that, again, as much as LeBron doing what he did on the court was incredible and that's where the that's the reason he's on the cover of our book and that's the reason everyone will remember the 2016 finals to get him. Dan Gilbert, same time, had to, you know, kind of swallow some pride and determine that, you know what, um, this is worth it. This is a worthwhile venture for me to pay the type of money that's never been paid before uh, to a guy who I have some, maybe some hurt feelings from the past with, uh, because in the end, this is this is the right thing to do for my franchise because I want my franchise to win a championship. One of the things that runs through the book a lot that I thought was really interesting, Dave, is just presenting LeBron's relationship with teammates as a leader. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he can be very moody. He can be very passive aggressive. We've, you know, he's, he's very inclusive on the court. And I think he's really good at getting the best out of his teammates and he can be that way off the court, but you know, there's the subtweeting and the cryptic messages. He got weird. I mean, yeah, really, he just separa- got really weird. He can separate himself from the rest of the team. How would you describe him as a leader and his leadership style, and I guess the overall effectiveness of it? Because it seems really complex. I agree with that. He is someone who tries to keep everything and everyone uncomfortable. He believes that the way or the path to greatness is never settling and never feeling comfort. And so over the course of 82 game season, he will stir up for lack of a better term and for brevity's sake, just he'll stir up drama and he will test players and test his team and see how they react. And, you know, I've had teammates of his explain to me, like, come on, if he tweets, yes, that's seen by all you guys, but, we are also having, you know, over the course of that game, that day that he may send out a tweet that may call a teammate into a negative light, we have a dozen com- conversations between him and that teammate or him and other players on the team. And so it's not like he tweets and then that's the only communication that's going on internally and everyone needs to just 
you know, try to decode that to try to figure out where it's moved that. Uh, but certainly he understands uh, the way these things work. And I think he, he knows the players that can benefit from a kick in the pants and, you know, those players that benefit from a hug. And, and you know, thus far, it's the way he's approached, you know, let's just say Kyrie and, and Kevin. Um, Kyrie is a guy who he praised as going to be a future MVP in this league and has tried to kind of cajole him. And um, I, I feel like that's his way of effective leadership with Kyrie. And Kevin's a guy who he's kind of challenged more. And, you know, the first year there together, and Kevin Love was, you know, questioning his role when he got benched in the fourth quarter. Uh, LeBron James, without mentioning Kevin's name, week later says, you know, I'll come off the bench for this team to help it win, you know, trying to send a message. And, of course, we know the fit-in, fit-out tweet. Right. And we LeBron also know he'd LeBron never do it. not coming off the He's bench. He's never coming off the bench. bench. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing about that is he said a year later uh, when the Cavs were in the Joe Johnson sweepstakes that he'd come off the bench for Joe Johnson. No, he would not. <laughs> we all love ISO Joe, but that's not it's happening. not a true thing. But what's interesting, though, Dave, is – like you said, his teammates say, we see the tweets, but we have these conversations. You know, there's a direct line of communication. And it reminds me a little bit of the way that, you know, the the teammates that generally got along with Kobe were the ones that played with him longer. And after a while, you start to realize you're going to get MF'd, you're going to get death stared, but the sun's going to come up the next day. And if you just deal with it or at times protect your own space, those are the guys that Kobe ends up respecting but, what, but what's interesting, though, about the idea that those lines of communications exist, that means that LeBron could actually just have the conversations without doing the subtweets. So what, sure. what's the public part of it? Is, is it just creating a different fire or, like, you know, sort of a, a different motivation for players? Because they, they can be mutually exclusive. Right. I mean, I guess if we're going to just bring up Laker – you know, analogies because it's what we do, and a lot of your audience are like your fans. Like Phil, you know, Phil had direct conversations with players, mm-hmm. but you know, before he was, you know, on Twitter like he is now. But he, <laughs> then he used press conferences to tweet them, and so I think there's an understanding LeBron has now, a decade and a half of the NBA, of the public pressure that he can apply as well to, you know. Uh, back up anything he's saying privately uh, or create even more of a, uh, you know, put up or else type of, you know, environment that that some of his teammates have to, have to either thrive in or find another destination to play. So who is the, you know, having covered both of them, you know, is something you know, Kobe obviously famous for making drama and and creating it and making teammates uncomfortable and all that kind of stuff. How do you compare and contrast them as teammates? Well, I mean, so let's just say this: uh, Derek Fisher, when he finished the time in L.A., said he'd never been to Kobe Bryant's house. Yes, right? and that's kind of the guy that is. But Dwight Howard has. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> that's you what's should, so weird. You should mention that is. To me, I, I know you've heard more things. You've been around. That is still the most single shocking thing I've ever heard an athlete say. It was one of those moments oh, wow. where we're all standing around, and he says that, and we start talking like we go past it for like three or four seconds, and then everybody realizes what he just said, and we all backed up and we're like, "Wait, what?" Um, that was shocking, and this was his bestie. Yeah. 
Derek Fisher and Kobe. Yeah, so if you, yeah, you put the one guy that, you know, you would go to whatever, usually, no, whatever, I wouldn't say it, but go to war, didn't want to say it, but, you know, that's the type of guy that always gets brought up, you know, and he's out there. LeBron cares about team culture, and, you know, it's very real. The team dinners, the playoff watch parties, the gifts that he gives them, um, it, that's all that's all a part of what LeBron's trying to create. And he deserves credit for that. And that was I just, that wasn't Kobe's way. And and again, LeBron to get some psychology side of it, like he was an only child, and his family became his teammates growing up. And so he's tried to recreate that kind of bond with teammates as a professional, as grown men. And and he even shows the way he plays the game. He is a more inclusive player than Kobe ever was or ever cared to be. Um, I think Kobe came into the league with more of an edge. It was, you know, even though they're both out of high school, I think Kobe had just a, a little bit more of a, not that LeBron ever lacked self-confidence, but, but you know, LeBron, like, part of self-confidence is if you're completely self-aware, you're probably not going to have as much self-confidence because you recognize, like, the, the way the world works. And I don't know if Kobe had that, um, Maybe I don't know if he still has it to this day. You know, he thinks he's going to create the new Lord of the Rings because he's such a great storyteller. So, uh, that's a lot is, for the muse cage. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so, I, I think that's uh, what separates them a lot of teammates. Where you know, you can certainly admire that iron will, but you could also be like, "Is this guy for real?" Where LeBron, I I believe in it's just my observations, my interaction with both those guys. Uh, it's just a little bit more fully formed and a little bit more realistic. I, I do, though. It's different podcasts, but I do want to find out who is in Dave McMenamin's muse cage at some point. <laughs> well, I would need a puppet <laughs> to be alongside for the podcast to do, make that happen, right? And, uh... <laughs> the whole thing is so damn weird. <laughs> he's, been, he's, been, he's been spending – he's spent like the last four years basically prepping for this moment. And not that he's not a talented guy, and there's, it's hard to tell stories. That muse cage thing with the puppet and the whatever is just damn weird, and I don't, it, I don't it, think it, it's a great it, opening it start. Fascinating. It was fascinating at the same time. It is. Like, it is. It's revealing. The detail, the way like the, the, the background colors changed, and he had the voice of the actress who played Belle in Beauty and the Like, kudos to all that, the Fantasia music. Yeah, but I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very it's it's him. I, I, but you know, I, I wanted to ask Dave uh, about the similarities and I guess differences in getting to know and cover Kobe versus LeBron because both of those guys seem to respect you a lot. So I'm curious about well, your perspective on it. I, I think the biggest difference for me was like just where I was in my life personally. So I moved to. Cleveland, and um, I'd covered the league for a decent amount of time at that point, and I'd had experiences. And then the, the player I'm covering is you know, LeBron. I'm about a year and a half older than him. We were in high school at the same time. We like I covered some of the high school tournaments he played in, so I know like his contemporaries. Um, and so when I stepped into the Casby, and also when I stepped into the Casby, like it's a new head coach, it's a new GM. Um, most of the players are brand new 
for the 2014-2015 season outside of you know, Kyrie and Dion and you know uh, Andy Varejao. Um So it, it wasn't. I was. I felt comfortable stepping into that beat and being able to make my mark. Whereas when I came into the Lakers, you know, Kobe's six years older than me. Everyone's been there forever uh, in the L.A. media scene. You know, Bresnahan and Ding and Elliot Tiefert and you guys. Kamenetsky. <laughs> You're very lucky, Dave, that you had me and Brian to, you know, sort of shake, Shepherd, shake Shepherd you under our collective <laughs> wings. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, and Phil, Phil's been there forever or, you know, between his two tenures put together. And guys like Gary Vitti and Mitch Trepp, like everyone had been entrenched. And so, whereas eventually – I, I think I developed a you know a, a decent or, or you know better than decent work relationship with Kobe. I don't think it was ever. I don't think he ever looked at me the same way and me as a professional the way that LeBron has because you know by the time I got to LeBron, I, you know, I was a veteran. I knew what I was doing. So um, if that makes sense to you guys, like it's it's been a different relationship just in, in that. That, it's not like you you were uh, tripping around the locker room and like couldn't figure out how to work your recorder and stuff like that, Dave. When you got to L.A., yeah, you knew what you were you knew what you were doing. Hey guys, <laughs> I'm Dave. I'm here to cover the team. Like to Kobe's credit, and I'll you know my career will be indebted to this. You know, the first time I really started to do uh, you know outside of very sporadic on camera work was I was doing. Uh, supposed to be a sit-down interview with from com and he suggests we do it with the camera crew and then you know once that happens and you get a sports center sunday conversation all of a sudden the bosses look at you in a little bit different light so i mean for that i'm obviously i feel indebted to kobe and fortunate that i did it i, I proved myself a, a, a enough <laughs> to, for him to feel comfortable doing something like that but and i think like i've used this analogy before like the HBO show Westworld, uh, everyone covering the NBA, you can just go and enjoy the theme park. Uh, but then there's like the guy played by Ed Harris who's like trying to find all the behind the scenes stuff. That's kind of where I'm at in my career now, covering a beat where you realize there's so much stuff under the surface. And if you're not fully aware of all that stuff and, you know, sprinkling me that in your above service coverage, then you're not actually covering the team the way it should be covered. And I don't think I did that enough in L.A. I'm, I'm trying to do it as much as possible in Cleveland. Breaking, Dave McMenamin thinks Kobe Bryant is a robot. Um, <laughs> well, before we let you go, we definitely want to ask you some playoff questions. Uh, so the, the, the Cavs were god-awful in the last quarter of the season, and um, they would then turn around and swept Indiana. But if you kind of break it down, it wasn't like they dominated those games by 25 points each. Um, how vulnerable are they right now, you know, when you look at the playoffs as a whole? Well, I mean, vulnerable relative to Golden State Warriors, a lot. Um, vulnerable relative to the rest of the league, I, I, don't, I don't think so much. Uh, I think they're a team that did not play good basketball going into the playoffs, and that's not a secret. But they rationalized why that was occurring. Um, it was injuries. It was scheduled rest. It was new players that were put together. They didn't get a chance to really get to know one another's games. And they came into it and they said, you know what's going to happen? We have the oldest roster in the league right now, but um, we're gonna, never going to play a back-to-back in the playoffs. So that's going to help us. And 
we're also going to be able to practice. I mean, they had two practices the entire month of March. Larry Sanders was with the team for almost a month, did not have one full practice with the team. Wow. Uh, before he was cut. Yeah. So they're like, okay, so if we have fresh legs and we have practice, we have smart players and they understand what we're trying to implement, that's going to make up for a lot. And then there's the natural adrenaline of the playoffs and playing for something, and that's going to help us. And then we're going to have home court advantage for, you know, most of the series we would play. Uh, this thing's just going to start to turn around in the right direction. And I think that has come to fruition through that Indiana series. Now, at the same time, you can't move the magic wand and make up for some of the things that they must improve on if they intend to defend their title, uh, protecting big leads, um, when their shots aren't falling, to continue to play some semblance of defense, because <laughs> there were times where that didn't occur at they all. Dropped the like, they dropped into like they dropped into like the 20s or something in terms of efficiency. Yeah, I mean they uh, they allowed 111 points per 100 possessions in the first round, uh, which is according to ESPN stats and info like 12 points worse. Uh, than the average NBA Finals team has fared in the first round defensively. So that's not so good, right? Um, now, that, that average you have to take into effect that, you know, scoring has been going up in recent years, and it's a little skewed. Sure. Um, but it, there, there are signs that they're concerned, right? But what did they do? Well, they swept, <laughs> and they have, oh, eight days off before their, their first game of the next round. And they think that they develop something formulaic-wise last year in the postseason by keeping their series short early on, allowing them, their bodies to recover, allowing them to, you know, really scheme for that next opponent and keep advancing. Right. And well, the, the, I have a hard the, time believing that, that they're not going to get back to the NBA Finals. And if they are playing the Golden State Warriors, wouldn't if some would suggest that they have the mental edge over that team, and then it's anybody's game. It just comes down to seven games. It doesn't come down to how they've been performing right. you know, in, in March and, and February. The place, the, the thing that I keep coming back to, though, and is like I've, I've seen a version of this movie before, and you saw the same thing. Um, when the Lakers lost in 2011, we spent most of the season excusing their shortcomings because we were saying, oh, they'll do this. They're, a lot of the same stuff. That you're they'll talking flip about. the switch. They'll flip the switch and, and, mm-hmm. and it, because they are the Lakers and they've gone to title and then three straight and all that. They're probably just bored with the regular season. And they were. There's no question they were. Um, but the signs that they just weren't that good were, were real. We chose to ignore them. So what I'm trying to figure out is – how much of that applies to to this year's Cavs team? But then the flip side of it is, at least until they get to the finals, that the the rest of the East just doesn't look that as good as I thought they would. Um, you know, going into the play, I don't. I didn't think Washington would be tied with Atlanta. You know, I I, I didn't think Boston would be tied with Chicago. So, you know, Toronto struggled with with Milwaukee. They may just. The, the rest of the East may not be as good as I thought. So which one of these things is more important? Yeah, and it's funny. I've thought back to that Lakers team. But, you know, that team did lose a couple of first-round games to New Orleans. That team played the eventual NBA champion in the second round. Um, so you could say whether, you know, did they fizzle out or, you know, did they just happen to, to face the best team in the league at, in an opportune time? Uh 
also, the, you know, that team we convinced ourselves, I think at one point, the second half of the season, then they win like 16 out of 17 or something like that. And we're like, oh, okay, well, they, they actually can flip the switch. Um, I, I think the, the hard time I've had judging this Cavs team is it is completely different, I believe, than any other team in league history because of the LeBron James arc. And he's trying to make a seventh straight NBA Finals. I think he's managed his season in a way where we don't fully comprehend because, I mean, when he plays, his numbers were great during the regular season, but was that really LeBron at his absolute best? You know, was he holding something back? I I think purposely the team was not trying to expend his energy on defense. (laughs) And I certainly hope so. <laughs> play defense, right? Gonna play defense. They're a different team. No, I mean, again, I will not be shocked if if they lose in the NBA Finals. Actually, I, at this stage right now, I kind of expect that to be the case. Well, Golden, Golden State would, right now is a better team, right? Exactly. Um, but I, w- I would be somewhat shocked because if they lost beforehand, you know, because where is that that Lakes team? Again, you're right. It, there, was, there was sign after sign after sign. I think the, the Cavs, like, there, there are reasons, as I laid out before, the rest and the injuries and 22 different players on the, the roster throughout the course of the season, why they weren't really ready to play a semblance of real basketball until now. And I guess the lesson we'll learn is, you know, can you manage a season that way and still win it all? Um, you know, these guys talk about building habits. They haven't had a chance to do that, and you know uh, it could be where will very well be their downfall, or it could be just you know that they, no matter what would have occurred this season, that the Golden State Warriors are the better team, and you just have to live with that. Well, I guess the biggest concern that I've had about the Cavs, particularly in the second half uh, during this season, is just how concerned they've seemed to be about what's going on. I mean, like the Lakers when we covered that 2011 team. There was a certain arrogance and swagger about, no, we'll figure it out. This isn't a big deal. And obviously, they ended up wrong. But the Cavs, at least from the outside looking in, have seemed genuinely perplexed about why they can't kick it into a different gear and, and genuinely perplexed like about, they've okay, had points what's where missing? they've tried to, right, like to we, do it they right. Don't, they they don't seem to know exactly how to go about correcting it. And I guess on one hand, you could say the urgency that they still feel might ultimately lead them to the solution. But the other side is it may just not be there. Like they, it, it may be something that they can't solve because it doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, late in the season, um, I had guys basically tell me, like, I just don't get this team. That's not what you want to hear. No. Uh, uh, you know, there was a game where they lost at Denver where they had their full roster healthy for the first time in months. Like, J.R. Smith was coming back to line up. They had gotten... Kevin Love back from knee surgery. Um, Kyrie, Kyle Korver, excuse me, had a foot thing that he had overcome. And pregame, Tyloo says, I think we're in for a special night. <laughs> Let's get out there. And then they just got trout by the Nuggets. So those are things that you don't, you can't ignore. But then you rationalize, and maybe this is just having too many conversations with these guys trying to figure themselves out, where they say, well, you know what, but, you know, that's that wasn't our real deadline to hand in our final term paper. <laughs> you know, the deadline doesn't begin till the playoffs begin. And 
you know, again, whether this is just giving them too much credit for what happened last June, but this, for the most part, is the same group that was down 3-1 to the greatest, quote-unquote, regular season team of all time and won the, won the finals. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe we just shouldn't try to judge them based on other groups that we've seen before and just accept that that they are they are their own thing. And uh, until they are done, uh, it wouldn't behoove any of us to throw dirt on their grave. If you had to pick a team, uh, who who matches up with them best? Who is most likely to knock them out if someone did it uh, before the finals? The team I've, I've liked all year, and I think they only got better as the year went on, uh, especially with Lowry coming back healthy, is the Raptors. Uh, you have a guy in P.J. Tucker who's going to want to be incendiary and, and all up in LeBron all series along. They fortify their front line with Ibaka. They have Valanciunas, who was not really healthy last year during that Eastern Conference Finals. I know they lost Biombo from that team, but they have Carroll, who's healthy now. DeMar DeRozan playing the best ball of his life. Dwayne Casey giving him a steady presence where they they have a program there. A guy like Norman Powell dropping 25, who, you know, it gives them that kind of athletic guy off the bench that the Cavs have struggled with. They're they're a real team, and they're a team that also plays really well at home. Uh, that that's a challenge. That's a major challenge. Uh, I, as good as Washington is, with you know, lead guard and John Wall, the rest of that that roster, I don't think the scares the Cavs whatsoever. Um, and again, that Washington Wizards game is not a home court advantage whatsoever. That's an easy place for a team to go in and, and not feel any sort of external pressure because of the playoff atmosphere. So. I'd say Toronto is the, the team I'd look to, and you know we'll see if Toronto even gets out of the first round. Though you know the Bucks are down three-two, Toronto is a huge win in Game Five, uh, but I, I don't think anybody's counting the Bucks out with that Game Six back in Milwaukee. So we'll see if that even is a challenge that the Cavs have to overcome, or they'll be able to dance around that. Um, if the Cavs end up repeating or just win another title, what, what does that do for LeBron's legacy, specifically with the city of Cleveland? Not, not the MJ goat talk, but I mean just like Cleveland, oh, like on an emotional it's level. It's named LeBronville after that. I mean, because <laughs> well, Cleveland's yeah, such a specific sports city. Yeah, I mean the, the civic pride is through the roof, and it started with LeBron coming back and. You know, these guys in in that city got excited about you know the Cleveland Gladiators, the arena football team winning it all, and you know the Lake Erie Monsters having a good postseason run. Oh yeah, age the, the minor league hockey, and of course the Indians getting to Game Seven of the NBA Finals. Like, there's they feel great about themselves as a city right now, and I, I do believe. And again, I moved to Cleveland in 2014, having never spent more than like two nights there consecutively, just being there on the on the Cavs. Excuse me, to cover a Cavs game against the Lakers, um, and it had a dreadful reputation. And I still think the reputation has a long way to go. Um, but I will tell any person I meet that you know what you hear about Cleveland doesn't really match up with what it is. Uh, you know, it had some. Tough uh, lake effect snow in the winters, and that gets pretty rough. But it's it's a pretty cool town. It's a cool, and it's a town that's a great sports town. And, and LeBron will forever get credit for changing that that narrative and giving you know people around the world a reason to feel good about Cleveland, which is I think it's a pretty powerful thing. Uh, if LeBron wins it again, 
you know, one, I think if he wins it again, it will give a better chance for him to stay longer or perhaps even finish his career with the Cavs, which uh, if I had to make a bet right now, I don't think that's going to be the case. Not that he would go running for the hills. Why? Why, 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 would he, why would he leave again? I, I really believe, and we saw him say it on the record to Howard Beck, the Bleacher Report, and I've heard you know other people tell me as much that he wants to be able to play with some of his friends and, and have a completely different basketball experience to maybe close things out. Just see what it like to be on the road with Chris Paul and Mello and Dwayne Wade or some combination of those guys to finish out his career. And, you know, his offseason home's in L.A., and he has a lot of business interests going on in L.A. And I, I, I just I believe he will end his career with either the Clippers or the Lakers. And Ooh, the timing of that, I, I just don't know when it's going to be. Um, I think them throwing, you know, adding championships now will prolong his time in Cleveland because he's not going to walk away from, you know, a team that, that he believes is primed to continue to win it all. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, that, that's, I think that's ultimately would, would add to his legacy in Cleveland as they wanted this year is that he's probably going to be staying there a little bit longer. I'm sorry. Everything, I stopped listening after I, I got <laughs> Carmelo, Chris Paul, LeBron, and, and Wade. Larry, and Wade, and Larry Nance Jr. <laughs> that's your team right there. I'm into it. And Zubats playing center. Over, you sign up for it over what you've been seeing the last couple of years at Lakers. It's interesting, though. I picture, like, as fascinating as that would be to watch, I also picture that as having a very high potential of ending four friendships. Like, it's it's very different to do this year in and year out than it is to play once every four years on the Olympic teams or just be as genuinely close as I know they are, having not worked together before. The, the dynamic changes... A lot, especially when, when now they're going to be, be old. I was going to say, and they're, and, and they're all looking to put final stamps on their career. Like this feels this to me like a terrible a, idea. It feels to me like a you know a fascinating, but you know, be careful what you wish for type thing. At least potentially. Yeah, but, but like, how bad could it go? You know, like okay, so say they're like that Rockets team that had Scotty and Charles and Clyde and Akeem, right? Like, yeah, they probably won't win at all, but you know, they'll make some memories and put some money in their bank and, you know, have all those 41 row games together. Well, they, they better get to players. it quickly, though, because, like, Wade, you know, by the, if they wait three years, <laughs> Wade's going to be, like, 43. I mean, they they got to they gotta get to this fast. So if he stays in Cleveland another year, it just it, it, I mean, like, it, next it's be hard to put together. For, for LeBron, Melo, and, and Wade, right? Uh, just because Kobe and KG and Duncan, Duncan, I guess, walked out after 19 years, right? But just because Kobe and Vince Carter and Tim Duncan, excuse me, uh, uh, KG all played 20-plus seasons, doesn't mean that these guys will. I mean, there's, there's big money to be had, but I, I, I think they've also all made tremendous amounts of money. So, I don't know. Like, that's, this is spitball, and this is not source information, but, like, say LeBron goes there. So I shouldn't have tweeted now. it? <laughs> Say <laughs> he goes two years from now, and he like his 18th and final season is in LA, and he plays with those guys and walks away a happy man. Like I, I don't think that's a I'm already trying to scenario. To I'm already game. trying to figure out what they give up in these trades and deals and what have to make the room for these guys. <laughs> uh, last question I have for you, Dave, and I, and I preface this question by saying I have a lot of respect for Brian Windhorst. He's very good at 
what he does, and you know nobody knows LeBron better. But he's also a very serious man. Uh, during the process of writing this book, if I set the over-under at four for the amount of times Windhorse laughed, what's the best bet? <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, I think Brian's public perception is much like the city of Cleveland. He's way more of a laugh and, and uh, really fun guy to be around. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I've seen him out in public, man, and there's not a lot going on in the, on the True podcast. Well, you know, he's very that, serious. Now, now, Brian is like a curmudgeonly old man prematurely. <laughs> and I don't think he's, he's – I, I think I know for a fact he's not even 40 yet. But He's got some get-off-my-lawn. Like, <laughs> like you guys would love him just in terms of like he is a reference machine. Oh, like, yeah. He, he consumes a ton of movies and TV shows and stuff like that. He'd speak your language in there, and uh, he loves to travel. So he always has stories about where he's traveling from. So, no, actually, Brian's Brian's uh, Brian's a good time. I enjoyed the process of, of working with him. I continue to enjoy the, and that's not just political. Like honestly, he's gotten to know. Like you know, he's become like one of my better media friends, and I try to separate friends from media friends. So right. the fact that he's infiltrated that means means something. What were you, was he pissed that you got all those photo credits and he didn't? The little section of the well, book no, where all the pictures are? Because, he's happy because I saved us a ton of money by doing that. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah, I said, like, credit Dave McManaman. Dave, you have, like, eight or nine or ten different pictures in here. Yeah, yeah, I shot well, so That was, like, one of the things I took on. So I was like, I'll, I'll, take care of, I'll figure it out because I had, you know, some some people at NBA Photos were helping me out. And, and yeah, I shot the cover photo, which is kind of cool. Like that was that was his game that that was taken. You wait, you took the cover photo? I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah, it, it was taken a game. LeBron came back from his hiatus the first season um, in Phoenix, and the Suns usually, uh, if there's not too many media people, give us a great media seat right on the court, right next to the Cavs bench. And uh, I don't know, I was sitting courtside, and LeBron came right up to me, did the toss, like literally right in front of me, broke out the phone, and. A couple years later, we got to put on books for forever. So. so that's just like an iPhone picture. That's an iPhone picture. Yep, it's a hell of an endorsement. They, they have for all iPhone. those. Right, they have all those billboards. I'm <laughs> like taking on an iPhone Seven. They should do this. That. I've thought about that actually. Yeah, I gotta get. If there's any Apple people listening, hit me up. And <laughs> <laughs> this that, is at, uh, will appear on our Apple Podcasts feed. So. Surely they're listening. Uh, the book is Return of the King, LeBron James, Cleveland, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and the greatest comeback in NBA history. It's a great book. Uh, NBA fans will devour it. Dave McMenamin, along with Brian Windhorst, the authors. Dave, man, thanks so much, and congratulations, man. This is awesome. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I love talking to you guys about it. And, yeah, it's a pretty fortunate thing. Uh, it was crazy when I moved to Cleveland. I thought this would occur. I didn't know quite how it was going to occur. And yeah. The fact that a lot of things went wrong before they went right only made the story better. And don't tell Shelburne that we're we're kind of excited that you became a New York Times bestselling author before she did. <laughs> I think she's doing okay. I, she's doing fine. I just feel like that would be a little too much. We got to knock her down a peg or two, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and she knows her stats. Come on, <laughs> Ramona knows. She knows <laughs> exactly. Stats. She knows exactly what she hit as a sophomore, junior, and senior at Stanford. Not buying that. Uh, thanks, Dave. Man, we really appreciate it. Okay, thanks, guys.